Our scripture comes to us from the uh, book of Psalms, Psalm 14, and we'll read the entire uh, chapter of Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on the Lord. There they are. Overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. These are the words of the Lord. For a moment, congregation, I thought the, the little girl was going to take all my thunder <laughs> from, from my message this morning, but it's a, it's a delight to see that the children, the children know the greatness and the glory of God. Psalm 8 says that they will declare that greatness and that glory. And we find ourselves uh, this morning in the, in the early part of the Psalms, and I don't, I don't know about you, but but if you think about it, Psalm 1 is, is a memorable psalm, and uh, many people are familiar with it. And then, and then Psalm 2 is definitely less familiar, although it's an important psalm, a messianic-type psalm. And then from Psalm 3 to 7, and then from 9 to 14, they begin to get a little hazy in our mind. I'm suspecting that they're not psalms that we go to and read very often. Psalm 8 we do. Uh, but, but many of these psalms uh, we don't go to very often. And they're psalms uh, that, that David was uh, using to kind of rail against the, the evilness and the wickedness in the world. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning, especially on the first Sunday of Advent, in order to really get a, a handle on the problem as the little girl said, uh, we got a big problem. And what are we going to do with that big problem? So uh, the, the title of my message this morning is, I am the problem. I am, and maybe from the little girl, the big problem. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in 1908, just a little bit over 100 years ago, the Times newspaper in London asked a number of prominent authors of the day to write on this topic. This was the topic that they invited articles to be prepared on, and this was the question that they asked them. 
said, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? Now, in our day and age, I'm sure that we are still wondering what is wrong with the world. If we take a look at the news for a moment, we've got a pretty good idea that things are not going very well all around this wonderful globe that God has created. So they, they put out the word for these articles to be written, and as it turned out, um, a, a, a good writer, a very good writer of the day, a Christian writer named G.K. Chesterton, uh, answered with the shortest uh, article of all, and I'm going to read it to you. This is what he submitted. The letter that he submitted said, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chetterson. I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. By saying this, Chetterson didn't didn't mean that he had committed all the sins, that he was the worst of all the sinners in the world. He wasn't suggesting that, that everything focused upon himself as the big mistake and that if, if the world would just simply set him aside, that all things would be good. He was not suggesting that at all. He was suggesting that when we fall into the, into the temptation to blame everything else around us as the problem, what's wrong in the world. And maybe, like our children would tell us, if you point a finger, there's always three pointing back at you. Right? I am the problem. Chesterton's understanding from a little over 100 years ago still eludes the mind of humanity today. In our self-help, self-actualized, self-confident world, the concept of me personally being society's problem is one of the furthest things from most minds. I mean, the concept of my sin being an issue is so old school. Our modern thinking really doesn't leave room for it. But the truth of the matter is, it's a foundational concept found in the scriptures. And again, as our children told us this morning, it's right there at the very beginning. It sets the stage for everything that will unfold thereafter. Now I know that many people in the church today think that we are a full step ahead of others in the world for at least being aware of the concept of sin and, and our being tainted by it. We think that in our doing things for God, or simply in our asking things from God, that we are somehow in a, a better stead with the Almighty. That we already have an awareness that many other people do not have, and so we can justifiably put before us as credits, if you will, credits. Well, at least, you know, I do things for God, and at least I know that I have to ask for things from God. But I tell you, my friends, if there's anything that's an Achilles heel, 
of the Christian faith. It's the concept that we think ourselves a step ahead of all others. No, like Chesterton, we need to be forthright with honesty and integrity and with courage to be able to say, I am the problem. Now, I realize that most of us would rather ignore this diagnosis of this conclusion. As is often the case, a a patient will block out what a doctor has told them because it's too hard to hear. I see that as a pastor all the time. Oh, the doctor says I'll have to be in the hospital for, for at least a month, maybe six weeks, but I think I'll do it in one or two. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Never been there and done that before, have you? Yeah. We've we've all done that. We've all said, I'm the exception. I go beyond the rule. I will do better. And so we don't believe what the doctor's analysis is, and, and, and we sadly ignore the facts of the matter. And so, in its own way, Psalm 14 explains the diagnosis in detail of the problem. Like I said, Psalm 14 comes at this section of the Psalms where there's a lot of decrying of the wicked going on. And and as David brings these things to the, the attention of God, even in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage against you, Almighty? Why do they raise up their head? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do they get away with murder along the way, David is saying? As he does this, he's bringing before God, he's highlighting the present reality for God to see the injustice of it all. David wanted wanted God to be able to, to note all this wickedness. And then after all that pointing out in the prior psalms with a break at Psalm 8 to give praise to the children who will sing the praises of God, then in Psalm 14, David came to his conclusion on the matter, and his conclusion was very sobering. His realization and understanding of the matter can be outlined by, I'm going to use four words this morning. The first one will be rejection, and then inspection, miscalculation and salvation. And through these four words, we'll see as David did and as G.K. Chesterton saw some 3,000 years later that I am the problem. So if you can put up the first slide for me. Rejection. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, There is no one who does good. Now, oftentimes when we hear these words, we hear the word fool, and we think of someone as feeble or simple-minded. Harriet, you alluded to that this morning. That's our common thinking in our world today. But I'm going to tell you that in the biblical sense, the biblical sense is, is actually almost completely opposite. A fool is someone who is well-educated, who has good life experience, who has a good grasp of things around the world, and does not see the obviousness 
of the reality of that there is a God and he is almighty. That's a fool. That's a fool. Such a person is morally flawed before God, David is saying. He is a person who is, he should know better. He, he sees the world as it is and he should understand that reality. And he refuses to do so and thus in the biblical sense he is a fool. Who was David applying this label to? Might surprise you. He was, he was applying it to everyone. If he were here today, if, if King David were still around today, he would, he would point out his finger and say, you are the problem. And then he would say, oh right, I have three fingers pointing towards me. I am the problem too. All people. Me, you, Canadians everywhere, all people since Adam and Eve, all those on down who have lived and whoever will live, yes, they're the problem. We are the problem. It's shocking, isn't it? We often fall into the trap of thinking of ourselves more highly. But fools break their relationships with others and with God and only serve themselves. I am right. I fully understand. I am the only one who knows exactly the truth. And this results in a fool bringing trouble on himself and all those around him. When a, fool says to, when a fool speaks to himself in his heart, this is not an emotional reaction. And we're used to that in our day and age. A lot is based upon our emotions of the heart. But again, in the biblical sense, the heart is not the seed of emotions. But rather, the heart is the thinking part of who we are. As our heart moves, so does our mind and all else. Now, the fool here is not a helpless victim blown back and forth by capricious and whimsical emotions. He knowingly and consciously commits himself to a life that defies God and denies God. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul uh, turn to Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. It may interest you to know that Psalm 53 is really a copy of Psalm 14 in its entirety. And Paul takes that in, in, in Romans chapter 3 and, and, he, and he lowers the boom on people. He says, there, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, all together have me, having become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, I don't know why sometimes we get ourselves into thinking that we are a step ahead. When someone today says there is no God, we call them an atheist. And what he means when he says that there is no God is that he does not believe that God exists and he does not believe that there's a spiritual life uh, beyond this physical material world. And in recent years, we have heard more, more and more vocalism from atheists, such people such as Christopher Hawkins uh, or Hitchinson's and uh, Richard Dawkins. In fact, atheists are becoming more and more mainstream all the time. They're even, some of them are even talking about getting together to have community. That kind of sounds like a religion, doesn't it? 
It, it kind of sounds like church. Anyhow, David in Psalm 14 was probably not talking about this kind of atheist, the kind of atheist that we know today. When the Jews in his day were going astray, they didn't uh, become philosophical atheists and said, oh, there is no God, there's nothing that exists out there. They weren't that kind of atheists. You see, when Jews failed to follow God Almighty, they went after idols. And they exalted other things in the place of God. And so they chose gods that were no gods at all, gods that they could manipulate, gods that they could control by by giving the right sacrifices to. And in this they were still very religious, but they denied the true God and ran life their own way. And in this they became atheists. Now when we read Psalm 14 verse 1, our first instinct might be to apply these words to the outspoken atheists of our day. But in actual fact, David was really describing any person who was in broken relationship, that is, is in sin, as apart from God. We are the fools who say there is no God. To be brutally honest, each of us can and must say, I am the problem. Why? Because our lives reveal this to be so. And this is where the next slide, the inspection, comes. Inspection. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind, or the sons of men, to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. When people deny God, that doesn't make the Almighty any less real. I want you to understand that. People continually say, well, there is no God. But it doesn't, that's not, that doesn't make it true. It just makes it what they think is true. No matter what we puny humans have to say, God still remains powerful, and as such, he's able to examine our lives in minute detail. He doesn't have to look down or come down literally from heaven to know our hearts. God is omniscient. He already knows everything. David was using a figure of speech for us to visualize God's careful inspection of our world and of our lives as well. God looks down because he is exalted and high above us. And in verse 2, the word mankind, or in the NIV there, the sons of men, the sons of men is translated from the Hebrew word Adam. This is the word or the name in context. It can mean either people in general or it can mean Adam. As David wrote here, he surely meant to give an echo back to the very beginning of creation. Adam and Eve, the first parents of humanity, plunged themselves and their children into sin-plagued life. And the infection of of their sin runs through every human being who has been and ever will be. When God looks down from heaven, what he sees is this proclivity, this tendency in all peoples towards sin, both the original sin that comes from Adam and Eve and the actual sins that we commit ourselves both alive and as we do all through our daily lives. Now, none anywhere can be found to be righteous in and of themselves. When God looks, does he 
Does he behold a lot going on, though? Is there a lot of religion happening? Oh, yes. Now, survey after survey in North America reveals that, that people are leaving organized religion in, in droves. And it's got our hearts palpitating pretty hard. We're wondering what's happening to the church, what's happening to the faith of Christianity. As people abandon what we see as the dominant worldview for our Western society, we think they are all becoming atheists, and I'm I'm telling you, they're not. I still think that that those who say that there is no God, that he doesn't exist and there's nothing, and this is all that there ever has been, I still think those are very limited in number. I still think that most people are religious. Some meditate, others offer incense at some altar, some travel around the globe trying to find themselves as if you lost yourself and you'll find yourself in South America when you you were born in North America. What is that? That's a sense that we know that there's something wrong with us and we're trying to find every other explanation, but none of those explanations will do. In doing so, we become practical atheists. Why? Because people have rejected the one true God of heaven and earth. Well-respected Bible commentator, Presbyterian Reformed pastor, uh, James Montgomery Boyce put the matter this way. He said, religious activity that does not come to God through Jesus Christ is an active denial of God and by definition, the essence of atheism. And so all this leads us to a miscalculation. The next slide. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. You know, we live in a time, we live in a time in history that is in many ways dazzling. Do you want to be in Europe tomorrow? How many think that would be a cool idea to be in Europe tomorrow? Yeah. Well, go online this afternoon after church. You can get a ticket and you can fly probably out of Edmonton tomorrow or minimally out of Calgary. You can be in Europe tomorrow. That's unimaginable a hundred years ago. It's unimaginable a thousand years ago. It's unimaginable to David. But yet we can do it. You want to know what the news from Africa is? Well, go online. You can find specific news to Africa. If you want to eat something delightful, you can go to the grocery store or go to a restaurant and you can have it all your own way. That's what the restaurants tell us, don't they? You can have it your way. Yet in this awe-inspiring world, David notes that the wicked do not even have the most basic knowledge of the Almighty. They turn their back on the true God and do not seek Him, and as a result, they do not know Him and are lost in ignorance. When it says in verse 4 to call upon the Lord, that's another way of describing a relationship with Him. It means appealing to God for help and asking for His presence in worship. The wicked do not want or seek or know God. But did you notice two words of significance in this verse 4? My people. The wicked are devouring God's people for lunch. 
Despite the brokenness and rottenness of humanity as a whole, God still has some people that he's decided to set apart for himself. And yes, they are being battered. Yes, they seem to be at a loss. Yes, the future, humanly speaking, seems to look bleak. But God has a people set aside to himself. And so that leads to the last slide, salvation. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Evil has been having a heyday. The world does seem to be set against God. In fact, even though the world belongs to God, humanity seems to be running amok and out of control with God's possession, and including even God's people. However, the wicked have gravely miscalculated. And God remains God. Ultimately, there are two things that drive all people. Fear and the desire for control. When conflict arises, take a look at these two forces and they will be hard at work. When we become afraid, we become powerless. And when we seek control, we aim to have and use power over others as well as over God. And this is why doing things for God and simply seeking to receive things from God brings so little satisfaction to our daily lives. It's because God desires that we live with him in a deep relationship and a communion. Unrealized by many, religion is totally unacceptable to the Almighty. You know, a lot of people think if I just, if I just do something, God will be pleased. That's not true. That's not true at all. Do you know that God has no need of offerings or sacrifices or prayers or worship? He has no need of them. Why? Because He's the Almighty. He's complete within Himself. But what He desires from His people is that our hearts be set upon Him and that we enter into these things in a heartfelt relationship, a heart that drives the mind in the direction of following after God. You know, this is not in the, in the, in the, in the Western Greek thinking sense. This is in the biblical sense that God wants to get our heart. He's not looking for us to be sentimentally attached to the idea of God. You know, you know that North America is still sentimentally attached to the idea of God. Survey after survey reports that somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 to 80 percent of people say that they believe in God. And then we as Christians, we take some solace from that and saying, well, that's good. At least there's still some sort of a spark, some sort of an echo of the things of God in there. But guess what? The Apostle James says, you believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Not just a few of the demons, 100% of the demons believe that, and they shudder. The sentimental view of God will not do. God wants us to be lock, stock, and barrel, united with him in a living relationship. And he wants us to experience him because in doing so, we come to know that there is no other life but life in him. This is why Jesus, the Son of God, was sent into the world. 
This is what Advent and Christmas are all about. Since all are lost and have gone astray, there was only one solution. Remember in the garden, the children reminded us of that thing, you know, the big problem in the garden. And, you know, the, we, we, they, they said it in such a wonderful way. They, they were naked and, and they ate the fruit and they, just, they had a big problem. I love that. That was just great. But you know how God already solved the problem in the garden? First he calls out, and what does God say to Adam and Eve? Where are you? Where are you? And they're off. They've, been, they've scurried back. They're hiding. They're behind the trees, if you will. They're hiding, and, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here. But God comes to them right there in the garden. God comes to them. Where are you? We're hiding. We're, we're faking ourselves out. We're, we're saying that the doctor is wrong in the diagnosis and I'm going to get better even though all things point to me dying. I'm going to do better than everybody else. Where are you? We're lost. <laughs> we just have to admit it. We're lost. And until God comes to us, we're going to stay lost. So what did God do? He did something incredibly remarkable. He brought Jesus Christ, his son, into the world in the flesh. Isn't that something? Today, the first day of Advent, a time of year when we prepare for the celebrating the birth of Jesus, and the truth is we should marvel after marvel after marvel at this truth that God called out to us, where are you? We were lost in our lostness and instead of God simply leaving us in our lostness, he came to us. He broke through our brokenness. And so as we enter into this time of preparation and remembering coming to the celebration, we do so, we do so declaring our need for the Savior. Each and every one of humanity's clever religious devices falls flat on its face in the presence of God in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Every human device that says, well, if I just burn some incense, if I just go on a pilgrimage, if I just go find myself somewhere, if I just do these actions in this way, then I will be right with the Almighty. And, Jesus, and God says, I don't want that. I want you to come into full relationship with my son, Jesus Christ. That's why I sent him into the world. Jesus came to bring true life. He came to turn a dark world, as we saw in the children's message again, to turn it full of light because fools were running around in the darkness. He came to reunite us with God Almighty. How did he do that? First, Jesus lived the life that none of us could live. He lived it without sin. You know, again, we think ourselves often a step ahead because we have some knowledge of the, of the holy. We have some knowledge. And so that knowledge, oftentimes, we turn it into religion. You 
You know, folks, maybe you, maybe you have even exhorted your past pastor or some pastor, yeah, we need the law read every Sunday. I, as a pastor, say, you need that law written on your heart so you don't need to hear it every Sunday. That's where the law should be written, on the heart. Because the heart, in the biblical sense, is determined where your, whole, your wholeness goes. You see, we can easily fall into religious practices, but God wants our hearts. And so the first thing he did is he sent Jesus into the world in the flesh. And the next thing that Jesus did, he lived a perfect life. And then ultimately he went to the cross. Oh, to the cross, Jesus went to the cross to bear all of our sins, all the darkness, all the evil, all the hurt, all the pain was born on that cross so that we might have life and life in abundance. His offering, his death, his sacrifice paved the way to God once again. The exile from the Garden of Eden and from Adam and Eve's failure were completely turned on its head in Jesus' life. And it was all accomplished through the sacrifice of his body and his blood. That's why we celebrate communion from time to time. Remember what Jesus gave up so that we might have his life. Yes, while the wicked were snapping up God's people for lunch, Jesus was giving himself as our ransom and our peace. Now I'm going to point you to a single word here in verse 7. Oh, that's salvation. Salvation. Don't we love that word salvation? Let me tell you that word in the Hebrew that word in the Hebrew is Yeshua. What was Mary and Joseph commanded to name their son? Yeshua. Jesus. Salvation. Isn't that something? David already, more than a thousand years before Jesus came, all oh, that Yeshua. Oh, that Yeshua would come. <laughs> I'm sure that he probably didn't fully even understand what he was asking himself. But praise God that he did. That was his cry. Turning away from the folly. Turning away from the foolishness that so many people easily come in. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. When we were foolish enough to say there, there is no God, God reached out to us and gave us his son to make us wise unto salvation and him alone. With such wisdom, we too can then be ready to say with David, Oh, that salvation, oh, that Yeshua would come out of Zion. Come, Lord Jesus, come into our hearts, wash away our sins, Take control of our lives. Save us from ourselves. Make us new. Yes, I am the problem. But Jesus is the answer. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, how often have we not railed against the world blaming so many others for the condition that we find the world in today. 
and taking so little responsibility ourselves for our own foolishness at times, of being drug off into fox trails that lead us into religion instead of into relationship. Places that say that we can simply do a certain number of things in a certain kind of way then then we, we have accomplished worship. But Lord God Almighty, you want us and you want every part of us. And as we enter into this Advent season, as we're reminded once again of Jesus coming into the world in the flesh, we ask, O oh God, that we take it anew and afresh with a sense that we've, like we've never taken it before that God wants all of us and every part of us, and that anything less leaves us in a state of being a fool, a fool who says that there is no God. Help us to look to Jesus in our worship. Help us to sense what God is doing in this world. Help us not to invent things on our own, but to, to see what you are doing in people's lives, O oh God, and then to continue to work and to praise you, Almighty, to speak of your great deeds, to tell of the wonders that you have done, to give the message anew that Christmas isn't just a time of year for giving presents and for having a happy holiday, but it's about celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, Yeshua, our salvation. Remind us once again in our worship, in our daily living, in our actions, at our workplaces, that we may do all things unto your glory. This we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.